we know that eccentrics are going to provide a perhaps superior stimulus and, and it could be something that, that works really, really well. But we know that some of the drawbacks are some of the soreness and other things and that can actually then affect what the main thing is, which is their sport. And you want to keep that main thing that they're able to do that. So if you're like, again, like you said about being the mad scientist, and I've fell foul of this before where I, I'm focused on that adaptation too much and I forget about what they're really here for. And that's the actual sport. And you end up with them not able to perform at their absolute peak because I've pushed the boundaries too much. And I, th I think that also factors in the decision-making of, of whether eccentrics is a strategy for all athletes. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is slightly different because today we have a recording which was done about a year ago and it features Mike Young, John Waggle and Pete Burridge all around eccentric training. So this was released on Sportsmith uh, as a live session where people could tune in and ask questions to these three guys. So it's kind of a re-release, but there's some incredible information in there when it comes to eccentric training. So what is eccentric training? How and why should it be implemented with team sport athletes? And then some cautionary advice from the three guys when implementing eccentric training with your athletes. So if this is a modality that you're interested in learning more from, more about, and then from experts in this area... This episode will definitely be for you. It's an episode I got tons out of, so I'm sure you will do too. So, enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's a perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple match tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. 
visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Pete, John and Mike. Let's rock and roll. I'm going to get John in first and I'm just going to ask you to kick us off with probably kind of a, a base question that's going to allow us to uh, jump off from and the benefits of eccentric training. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do my best to hit, hit the highlights here. Um, you know, first and foremost, muscle force production isn't limited by the lengthening velocity with eccentric training, which, which really kind of opens up a lot of advantages in a sense, like we can produce higher forces at really high speeds, which logically lets us get more force per active motor unit when we're doing eccentric training. So that in itself from a voluntary muscle activation, maybe we've got some um, downstream effects of uh, on our inhibitory reflexes as a result of that as well. Um, but that just kind of central point uh, is really critical, especially when we get to later where we're going to place this in training. Um, but along with those things, we see, you know, a greater anabolic response, more satellite cells activated, uh, could in theory, you know, be beneficial for hypertrophy though. And I will admit like my lens by which I view eccentric training is with accentuated eccentric loading. Cause that was the topic of my dissertation. And generally we don't see that hypertrophy response as we would expect. Um, but the strength changes are there, um, which again, kind of goes back to the, um, the muscle activation side of it, but longer term, we also see shifts to faster myosin heavy chain isoforms, uh, fast fiber specific changes in cross-sectional area. So even though it's not at the whole muscle, we do see it at the fiber specific level. Um, and then even narrowing down to the conditioning or work capacity side of it, um, there are some really unique things that happen um, with eccentric training with respect to glycolytic enzyme production, the ability to clear out lactate. So uh, eccentric training get, gets, um, you know, kind of put into specific boxes or categories, but um, really there's, there's a whole host of benefits to doing it. And that's not to mention uh, the injury risk reduction side with things, if you want to put Nordic leg curls or, or things like that into the conversation too. Do you think from a strength and power point of view that it's something that's underutilized? Um, I mean, with anything, you're, you're going to have to be adaptation led with, with the decisions that you're making. Um, and that requires a lot more information. You know, that's why we have robust athlete monitoring pro protocols and, and things like that. But, um, I, I do think that there's generally a level of conservatism, um, with eccentric training and, and possibly rightfully so with the, with the soreness experienced and the muscle damage and, and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I do think it has a, a broader application than it gets credit for too, especially when regards to strength power. So, um, it, me personally, I, I would like to see it implemented, uh, with a little bit more regularity because I think it is that powerful of a, 
of a training tool, but um, I think a lot of the reason you don't see it is just because a lot of the methods are somewhat intimidating looking and, and don't really, um, you know, fit with some of the optics that we have in training environments sometimes. So do you think that is one of the biggest reasons that people are intimidated by it? Narrowing to AEL again? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of apprehension to, to put weight releasers or whatever the case, it, whatever your loading method of choice may be on the bar. Um, plus there are certainly some practical barriers, um, which uh, we can maybe talk about this later too, but um, you know, a lot of the apprehension is in that I have to reload the weight releasers every single time, every single repetition. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, that was one of the things that um, I was able to point out in my dissertation work, but um, there are some practical barriers, but also, um, you know, kind of the, the risk reward side isn't very well understood. Is your dissertation available for people to get, John, by the way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ResearchGate? Uh, yeah, ResearchGate, uh, it's published uh, JSCR and even sports is an open access journal. There's a couple papers in there if they want to check that out. Lovely, I'll make sure we link to that so people can have a read. Um, Pete, have you got anything to add on what John's just, just said? Yeah, I think you make a really good point that sometimes the optics of it look a little scary. And from my experience of using it with, with youth athletes, that's a population that straight away you go, ooh, they're beginner athletes, you wouldn't want to do it. It's quite scary. But actually, like you, like you alluded to, the potential with the laying down the satellite cells is, is quite key in terms of the potential for someone to grow. Um, and so if you can get that in early, you potentially build a wave of change that they can actually build upon when they're in later life. And that's the reason why steroids really should bring about a, a lifetime ban is because the satellite cells that they get from, from the steroids stick with them throughout lifetime. And so if you can lay those satellite cells down with youth athletes early, that perhaps potentially could be a higher potential for growth. Obviously, there are issues around safety and, and coaching youth athletes and making sure that they've finished or uh, near finishing growing so you don't run into any overuse issues there but I, th I think that's a population that I think would scare a lot of coaches but from my experience of, of drip feeding it in it can be utilized in a younger population I'm talking from 16 and above I'm not talking any younger than that I, I think that's something that, that has potential and and I think sets athletes up on that long-term athlete development model for potential higher gains further down the line. I'd love, to get my, I'd love to get Mike's opinion on that in a second, but I'll just, yeah, over to you, John. I, I said, sorry, Mike. I said, oh, one point to make, Pete reminded me, like, you know, a lot of times we lean on uh, requisite strength values or, or something like that as like, oh, when is the good time to implement AEL? But um, Pete working with the youth populations, I think really the, the most important thing is exercise technique um, because you don't want to fundamentally change the exercise that you're selecting because of the loading. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, you know, Pete's obviously a world-class coach and, uh, the technique side of it's going to be the thing that drives more than anything, in my opinion, like when guys or girls are ready to encounter that. Just bringing Mike in on the youth side, be interesting. I'm guessing there's people on this call and there'll be people watching the future who, who are working with youth athletes. How do you utilize eccentric training with, with youth, Mike? So we don't. We have not uh, ventured into AEL with our youth athletes. We do take it uh, quite progressive. Uh, we have no problem resistance training uh, youth athletes as young as like seven, eight years old. And what 
you know, we, we will load relatively early, but we don't get to AEL quite that soon. Uh, given what Pete said, that's actually really fascinating. And I would, you know, want to look into it myself to see if uh, it's something that we, we may incorporate. That said, we do uh, load relatively high in what I would think would be stimulus threshold, even for eccentric training, even when it isn't eccentric focused. I don't think you necessarily have to get to AEL. You certainly don't need to get to AEL levels to, get an eccentric stimulus, um, which is kind of one of the things is to, to the original question, uh, I think is important to understand here is that we kind of bundle this entire categorization of exercise uh, as this one umbrella, and it can do so much, you know, it would be like, you know, calling, having a mastermind on squats. Well, what are we talking about? Jumps, jump squats, uh, heavily loaded squats, slow squats, wall squats, front squats, back squats, overhead squats. There's so many different things and they all have varying uh, adaptation responses. You know, or if we really confine our discussion to AEL, we're talking about one thing. If we talk about really slow, controlled uh, tempo-based eccentrics, it's almost a completely different thing. You know, it's just because they fall under this umbrella of eccentric, you know, the muscle is lengthening under tension, doesn't mean that the either the stimulus or the methods are the same, or and certainly the adaptations are vastly different. You know, we see like in some areas, the muscle recruitment patterns are completely different. You go to, you know, sub-maximal, eccentrics, basically below concentric maximums, where you're just controlling the, the tempo, and we're getting going to get uh, greater recruitment on your slow twitch fibers. But we go to AEL, and now you're going to get massive recruitment of your high threshold motor units and fat, you know, both fast and slow twitch fibers. So I think there's problem with oversimplifying this and, uh, you know, understanding what does what is important. You know, in elite athletics, I think AEL is probably underused, but it's also something that you can't just jump into. I think you need to be very cautious in your progression to get there. Uh, so, you know, with youth, we are using some eccentric work, uh, uh, quite a bit of maximal isometric work, but we haven't ventured quite so far as uh, accentuated eccentric loading with them. But now I'm going to take another look and see if it's worth, uh, worth attempting something like that with say a, a younger population, 16, 17, 18. That said, Mike, I can't believe someone's idea was to bundle all this together. Must've been, must've been, <laughs> must've been peace. <laughs> Pete, over to you. We got anything to add there. I think, I think you make a great point and, and John's done some good work as actually clarifying in the literature as to what we mean when we say eccentric. So like the, the typical kind of slow tempo work, we aren't going to get those neurological benefits because the force output is actually less because to do a six second tempo, the only way you're going to be able to do that is by lifting submaximally. Um, but going back to that talk about talking about youth populations, actually, I quite like that, that strategy sometimes, especially with the population of athletes I, I work with, with a young male rugby player, like what's the, what's the thing that they like doing? They're going to lift with no technique as heavy as they possibly can. Uh, whereas actually by constraining them into lifting to a tempo, all of a sudden you're rewarding 
the behavior that you want. So you're rewarding that technique and they're understanding that they have to control it. They're not bouncing out the bottom of a squat. They're not over-reliant on momentum. And so actually that can be a really, really good tool on that journey towards perhaps normal concentric lifting. And then potentially with certain athletes, you may use AEL. And I would certainly say that it's not necessarily a blanket approach. You've got to have the right kind of athletes to buy into it first. And you've got to also know that they're like mature enough to deal with the, the discipline of spotting of safety and understanding that. And they're not going to get too carried away with just lifting it by any means possible and just putting an ungodly amount of, of, of weight on the bar. So I think, those things need to be taken into context when you're deciding which kind of AEL you're using as well. Um, so I think that's, that's a key point. Um, it depends is usually the answer. And I guess in, the, in this case, it is as well. Approached it. Oh, go on, John. I, I was actually going to ask Pete and Mike a question. Go for it, uh, please. And you know, I was just curious if you guys use, uh, you know, kind of slow cadence tempo work uh, as building blocks towards something even like flywheel or AEL, like where does that fit in your sequence? I use it quite a bit, actually. Um, the way that I've implemented over the years has changed a little bit. And some of that is due to the, you know, understanding of what's actually going on kind of alluded to in our previous discussion. Uh, I used to use it almost directly as a precursor to AEL. And now I see that it's probably some sits somewhere in a cross cross uh, roads between ma traditional maximal strength. You know, if I'm using, if I'm using, you know, the stuff you see uh, the fitness influencers do and calling it eccentrics where they're doing body weight squats slowly, that's, you know, there's probably some benefit to that in terms of work capacity or tonicity of the muscle or maybe some endocrine benefits. But if we're just kind of saying resisted training with an external load, I, I do incorporate 75, 75 all the way up to 90% concentric maximal loads at controlled tempos, you know, typically on a three count down, something like that in uh, concurrently with maximal isometrics or maybe even prior to that, some sub-maximal isometrics where we could volitionally overcome it. Now, I'm now kind of reworking my hierarchy or my progression so that I think this coming year with my athletes that train annually, the ones that, are, that I have the full run of progression to do, we're going to actually start with uh, slow eccentrics, uh, the sub-maximal eccentrics, and then build into the maximal strength work uh, concurrently with some submaximal isometrics, then build to maximal isometrics, still working on the kind of maximal strength, so to speak, before we go into AEL. And I think part of the reason for that is that if we're doing those even controlled tempo uh, eccentrics with loads that are 85, 90%, that's almost certainly stimulus threshold for eccentric uh adaptations you know we're we're at a load that is high enough you know if we're using 90 percent of our concentric maximal that's probably somewhere in the range of like 80 percent of our eccentric maximum and that's certainly we would expect to be stimulus threshold for all but the most advanced af strength-based athletes so instead of placing that control tempo work kind of in the middle we're instead going to place it towards the uh, beginning of the continuum so that because of this 
kind of newer understanding of like what's really going on. It's probably a little bit better for just uh, getting someone first started into the training process. Yeah, I would say for me personally, now, now that I work with senior athletes, I probably don't use it quite so much because the technical components are probably already, already there. We do do a little bit of it from a single leg perspective. Um, but I found whenever I've programmed with, with senior athletes and scaling it to a squad, like if you set a tempo of five seconds, in reality, you're probably getting three seconds at a push. If you, if you say three seconds, you're getting a very quick one second, maybe hold at best. So from that perspective, I'd rather just go and, and chase the neurological adaptations that a AEL or manually overloaded eccentric would give me. Uh, and then if I want hypertrophy, I would constrain it differently. I, I, I'm quite a fan of like drop sets or sets back off sets to failure to, to kind of hit that side of the, of the continuum. Um, and I feel sometimes that tempo work in the middle sort of sits in no man's land almost in that it's not really getting me any extra technical benefit and from a physiology perspective. And again, like you said, you chase the adaptation and be adaptation led, I sort of sit in the middle. So I'd rather hit both ends of the continuum and then leave that middle. Um, so yeah, we only really use it a little bit for some single leg work. Um, and that's about it really. I probably should have clarified this at the start. I hope, I hope um, people aren't confused. I should have done a better job. AEL, John, would you just give us a bit of a, yeah brief overview of that yeah so with ael we kind of narrowed it to three criteria which eliminated some of some of these other methods that we've discussed and will discuss so number one was that the eccentric load is in excess of whatever the concentric load is so it doesn't necessarily need to be super maximal but needs to be more than the concentric load which um, that automatically makes it distinct from flywheel and it makes it distinct from tempo training. There also needs to be a coupled eccentric and concentric action, which distinguishes it then from negatives um, or, you know, just straight up overloaded eccentrics with no concentric phase. Um, and then lastly, this one's more on the, um, you know, kind of desired outcome side, but um, we added to the definition that there were minimal interruptions to the natural mechanics of whatever exercise was selected. Um, and that really more optimizes how you apply AEL. I think the first two pieces of the definition make it exclusive to other methods, but that last piece, um, you know, a lot of the early application of AEL was actually rooted in potentiation. Um, and a lot of that acute potentiation tends to be adversely affected if you've got just this long coupling there that you're you're losing what you're gaining from the um from the overloaded eccentric aspect sweet thanks mate just to move on a little bit uh flywheel training mike it's been mentioned a couple of times would you give us a bit of an overview of the benefits of that and where that fits in this whole conversation this kind of continuum that we've you guys have spoken about Sure. So uh, flywheel training is another one, which is kind of been pigeonholed for eccentric training or eccentric focus training. You know, you even see it in the names of many of the companies, the company that I work with the most is eccentric and the name itself kind of speaks to what they're at least marketing towards, but it really oversimplifies again, because you could train maximal fairly maximal concentric capacities fairly easily on a flywheel device. In fact, 
the flywheel itself does not necessarily indicate, does not necessarily mean that you're going to get an eccentric overload. Uh, in fact, most of what I see online is actually really, really terrible use of a flywheel device and probably gets no eccentric overload. You know, the, the cable is too loose, too much slack. They're not putting in enough force input into the device. So you don't get anything on the eccentric loading. And one of the things with uh, the flywheel is that it is somewhat get out what you put in. So if you don't put a lot in, you're not going to get a lot out. <laughs> um, you know, these people just kind of going half-ass on the flywheel, they're certainly not ever going to reach stimulus threshold for eccentric capacity because we're so much stronger eccentrically. So without an external assistance, like a partner pulling up or hand assistance or something to that effect, you're never going to come close. Now, what it does do is almost forces people to apply force on the eccentric action, even at these submaximal loads. Because if you've ever used a flywheel device before, and we're typically talking about something like a squat or anything where there's a fast return on the, on the range of motion, right? So you hit the end range and then it's immediately going to bring you back around to the other, in the other direction is that it's almost impossible to be passive on the eccentric. You know, your body just does not want to let you do it. Uh, unlike say with a mass-based loading where it's very easy if you load it up too much on the bar that you could just effectively free fall. And you do see this sometimes there's, you know, basically you get a neural shutdown or something where people just free fall from a quarter squat position because, because of, uh, I don't know, perhaps safety reasons or something, but you don't really see that on a, on the flywheel devices. Uh, you know, that said, I think the flywheel has been a nice way to introduce uh, eccentric training everywhere on the continuum that I would like uh, and, and do so very safely. And the interesting story about it is that I was writing about eccentric training and the benefits of it for jumping and sprinting and using some of the methods that uh, John talks about and, you know, some quite frankly, some crazy ass shit, uh, loading up the bar and <laughs> doing stuff that I'm, I'm surprised we didn't see any, you know, flying vertebrae, things like that <laughs> about 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, e eccentric, the company wrote me and said, Hey, you know, you can do this with our device and do it a little bit more safely. And I was like, Hey, I'll check it out. And, um, you know, you, you can, I think do it some things more safely. Like it's much, I think it's, we use, weight releasers and we use all kinds of uh mass-based loading for accentuated eccentric loading and there's always a little bit of there's, there's less margin for error there you know you can certainly hurt yourself it's not something you want to do with a less experienced athlete but i've taken someone who's pretty much never hopped never resistance trained or never hopped on a flywheel device before and they might look terrible doing the exercise but they're not going to hurt themselves so you can do some really uh, aggressive loading with it that you can't do with some other devices. Now there's pros and cons to everything, but it is a nice means of doing it. And because I can achieve stimulus, I can get eccentric overload quite easily on a flywheel and quite safely. It has been a bit of a game changer for me. Uh, we don't, we're not using it at the neglect of other methods, more traditional methods, but we still, we do it pretty we use the flywheel pretty much year round with uh my a lot of my athletes 
how would you integrate it into a team sport environment? Especially if you've got so, limited budget and you've only got one or two. So it's quite difficult to be, to be honest, we have uh, four flywheel devices and we train a ton of teams and we don't touch it with the teams uh, just because logistically it's very difficult. Uh, you know, the simplicity of the barbell is really king in the exercise world. You can't get around having this straight bar that you load plates on. You know, it has its drawbacks, but it's it's uh, it does have its benefits. And um, so we we use it more in smaller groups of like twelve individuals or less, uh, and then individual asp- individual sports, private training, and then. Uh, return to play. So with injured athletes, it's a really nice way because of the many of the factors I just discussed of incorporating some form of loading in a very safe manner. Uh, You know, whether that's even concentric loading or a reintroduction of some eccentric loading, you know, the flywheel, if you, if you don't want it to be the flywheel, isn't necessarily eccentric loading. You just, uh, you can, but you can introduce that controlled tempo work because the body will instinctively resist on the eccentric because of that uh, quick turnaround of a well-configured uh, device. I think, you know, it, it basically, sna- there's no resting at the top of a flywheel squat. You hit the top and then it's immediately pulling you back down. That's something that's quite unique to flywheel training that you don't really see in say other base, other loading forms, whether that's uh, mass-based loading or even say pneumatic loading. Pete, is that something that you've incorporated with previous jobs at Leicester or at, at Bristol? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, personally, I haven't used it a lot, but I know from some of the people that I know who work in football, I, I think they, they've used it a fair bit. And I, I think there's benefits there in terms of just looking at the kind of personality a footballer might be. It's uh, A flywheel device is probably a little less scary than a barbell with heavy plates. Um, but I think... One of its one of its key uses that I know the guys at Leicester City are, are doing a really good job with is um, because they play so many games in the week and it's where do you even fit in your physical development stimulus? Is they actually bring it with them to away games or they bring it to the stadium and, and those travelling reserves or bench players who don't play, they just jump on and they're able to get a, a, a squat stimulus, maybe an RDL stimulus paired with some Nordics. And so you get the benefits of the fascicle length and all, all those kind of things that, that you would want that would help from an injury prevention perspective. And also from a perspective of if a guy is playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, and then all of a sudden you decide to jump in with some loading and they get really sore, they complain, they're not going to do it again. So actually, if you can keep that consistency of, th- of a thread, even if it's a very, very small one, two sets of very quickly before you go and get some post-match food, that can be a stimulus that that bears fruit a lot further down the line, longer term. And so I think it's definitely got some uses there and it's very, very simple, easy to, easy to use um, and to use with players who perhaps um, aren't playing, who, who you want to kind of pick up a very, very short, very quick stimulus with, and, and it's, it's low, low frills, easy to do. Um, but in terms of using it day to day, it would only be with with one or two particular athletes who I feel are going to benefit from that um, in terms of a particular case. Mike? Yeah, yeah I did. Uh, wanted to kind of trickle on there uh, just to make sure I was clear is that I do have a handful of athletes uh, working in basketball right now, pro basketball, and they, they've told me that their clubs use it very similarly. And also I found, especially in my basketball populations, 
And I've heard similar in European football, soccer populations is that, you know, they, there's almost an aversion to heavy mass face loading, right? They think that's American football. They think that's track and field athletics. And so pulling out bands, pulling out pneumatic Kaiser device, pulling out a K box is oftentimes a friendlier way to get loading and increase buy. And so this is separate from our eccentric discussion, but I have found, you know, it's almost like a, a, a way to provide resistance training that is quote unquote for them, you know, even though it's, we know that it is, that's a totally bogus notion, but I think those are kinds of things that we sometimes need to recognize. Is that something that rings true in your environment, John? Um, not necessarily. Uh, we, we do use the flywheel um, quite a bit more as a, a supplemental device, I would say than, than the primary uh, like training tool in a session, but um, early on in, in return to play or rehab situations, it, it is leaned on a little bit more. Um, and that's really where I, I really like the flywheel um, is in those scenarios where you can control the movement velocity, which as Mike mentioned, you know, the, the eccentric overload or lack thereof is, is yeah, it's mediated by the, the size of the wheel that you're putting on, but probably more so it's, it's going to be affected by the concentric velocity or the angular acceleration of the disc itself. So the rehab guys can control that movement cadence and, and kind of dictate the intensity a little bit where they can also uh, dictate the range of motion uh, pretty cleanly. Um, and there, there's, uh, even when you get to late stages, you, you do have, I would say, I don't have evidence to support this, but I would say just experiencing the flywheel, a longer transition between the eccentric and concentric phase, like there's kind of that sticking point at the bottom um, so if you've got players that are, you know, maybe readying themselves for plyometri plyometrics or sprinting or something like that, like affording them more time in that eccentric concentric transition with a, a whole lot of tension to deal with in that position too, um, that, that can lend itself really well there. But um, I know I didn't necessarily answer your question about the aversion to the barbell, but like the, the baseball training culture is, is, is a pretty healthy one and pretty open uh, to, to the methods so long as, and this is not revolutionary thought here, but if, so long as they trust the practitioner, uh, they're, they're going to be open to, to what you've got for them. Mike? Yeah, I, one thing I've found, and this is, uh, again, kind of the mad scientist thing that maybe almost got me into trouble with uh, mass-based loading was I, I found ways to load on, on a flywheel that are just even address some of the things that John was saying. Sometimes we want this long deceleration phase and other times I'll just, just hammer the brakes on, you know, we've done things where there's hand or partner assisted on the way up or potentiation with a, a ISO, uh, ISO pinch of the wheel where they have to have to give a maximal isometric followed by a, a partner assisted concentric. And then they just, uh, no partner assistance on the eccentric and have to just slam the brakes on at a half position or something to that effect in a partial range. And when you look at the eccentric overloading there, uh, you see that it's just astronomically higher than what you could see from non-assisted or, uh, you know, traditional kind of range of motion or exercise movement execution. So as with all exercises, you have some kind of leeway in terms of what you want to do. Uh, 
and we played around with a lot of them. You know, I talked about Slack and the rope being bad, but you can actually, if you use Slack in the rope and then the thing slams on you <laughs> uh, after the Slack has kind of run out, you get a higher loading there as well. So uh, there's a handful of tricks you can use just as there are with mass-based loading to really kind of ramp that up. Would you um, select specific joint angles for that, Mike? Not really. Uh, I just try to put, have them slam the brakes on as quickly as possible. And then you can kind of gauge based off of how much assistance on the concentric they is warranted based off of how long it takes for them to decelerate it. You know, if they, if we assisted a lot on the concentric and then remove the assistance and the eccentric took them a full range of motion to decelerate, well, then maybe that's not what we actually wanted. I want them to be able to break very rapidly to get some of the benefits for kind of athletic performance and joint angles, specificity that you'd see in sport, uh, from the flywheel. So, it, you know, I'm looking at how the, how it's executed, but I don't have exact uh, exacting ranges that I, that I keep them to. Cool. Pete, anything to add? Yeah. I just want to jump on a great point that Mike makes that probably is bigger than the eccentric chat here that like the key thing is the buy-in from both the, the player and from working in sport, also the coaching staff. So if, if we like, we know that eccentrics are going to provide a, perhaps superior stimulus and and it could be something that that works really really well but we know that some of the drawbacks are some of the soreness and other things and that can actually then affect what the main thing is which is their sport and you want to keep that main thing that they're able to do that so if you're like again like you said about being the mad scientist and i've fell foul of this before where i I'm focused on that adaptation too much and i forget about what they're really here for and that's the actual sport and you end up with them not able to perform at their absolute peak because I've pushed the boundaries too much. And I, th- I think that also factors in the decision-making of, of whether eccentrics is a strategy for all athletes. Like we're going to have some athletes, like we said, who like heavy weights, that's something that the American football guys do. That's something that rugby players do. And this is big and scary. And you know what? I'm not going to give you maximal intent. And if you don't get that intent, well, it doesn't matter that you've, like pick the right loads if they're not going to lift it well they're just going to get plastered by the bar or they're going to fake it on the flywheel and pretend pull a pull a a funny face even though they barely pulled the flywheel and go yeah yeah that worked but like that's not going to bring about any adaptation so with some athletes you've got to pick and choose right is this strategy is this version of of eccentrics worthwhile to even push with this guy because if he's not going to give me decent intent then i might as well just keep them to traditional lifting um because i'm not going to get those extra benefits that that, um john spoke about earlier on so i I think that's a key thing in in knowing that making sure that the player is willing to go to those levels and they know what they've signed up for like again there's nothing worse than doing eccentrics and just chucking it uh, on on a group of players that they don't know what's coming because the next day they'll know about it if you've if you've gone too big with your volume prescriptions so we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with John, Pete and Mike. More incredible information on eccentric training from these three experts coming up in part two. The 
This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and custom-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And now back to the episode with Pete, John, and Mike. Hey, when it comes to dynamic performance and qualities that you want to develop athletes on the pitch, is there anything specific where you that would be your, to develop that eccentrics would be your go-to? I know I see eccentrics, you've got this big continuum, as we've said, but you can pick anywhere on that on that uh, continuum to answer the answer the question if you want yeah well i guess i work in rugby and, and rugby is a pretty strength dominant sport and so eccentrics are going to be a stimulus that's perhaps like you can lift probably 20 to 50 percent you can exert more force 20 to 50 percent more than you can concentrically so straight away like stripping it right back to get strong what do you need to do you need to lift heavy shit so this allows you to lift even heavier shit so mm. like keeping it as simple as possible straight away that's going to elicit potentially better adaptations from a strength side. So if I'm trying to accelerate those strength gains, that's going to be a positive. Again, I work in a sport where hypertrophy is quite key. Like John alluded to, the research hasn't really backed that up too much. Like I've seen some practice-based evidence with some of the guys I work with, and there is a few like meta-analyses that shown some effects, but it's not statistically significant. I think Brad Schoenfeld showed, I think it's like 10% to 6% from concentric to eccentric uh, only lifting, which shows that there's a trend, but it's not completely like, yeah, this is definitely significant. So those would be the, the avenues that I would chase. I, I know that from a scientific adaptation perspective, the, the getting sarcomeres in series is going to help shortening velocity, which 
should help speed and power, which is interesting. But uh, I guess I'd, I'd pass this over to John. I don't know if you know much of whether that's converted itself to, to better speed outcomes, but that would be something that I would find quite interesting um, in terms of developing someone's speed qualities. John? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're leaning on a lot of theory and we, we have to do that. Um, you, you know, you had mentioned practice-based evidence and, um, you know, generally when, when we've been faced here with a, um, a performance problem that was rooted in explosive performance, uh, you know, this person needs to either run faster or hit the ball harder or whatever the case may be, um, that piece of information coupled with maybe that they are a low responder to training. So traditional methods just, just haven't moved the needle in the way that we expected. Um, and they haven't made that muscle uh, either take on the architecture or, or just general phenotype changes that we need to, to have that show up. Um, that's where we've leaned on flywheel, AEL, things like that to provide some novelty um, and to, to target the specifics um, that we're looking for that we've talked about, you know, those benefits earlier. Well, those are the things we need to make a more explosive athlete. Um, and, and so that's where we'll kind of insert it as well as is, is on that practice based evidence. And um, though we don't measure the muscle, muscle architecture or, or anything like that on the back end, just because of tool limitations, um, if, if we do see the global outputs change and we see the on field performance change, you know, we can infer that at least some of those uh, effects are in place. When it, oh, go on, Pete, sorry. Yeah, I, I think that, that's a good point. I think sometimes it's so tough to look at your practical evidence because I don't want to say that I'm someone that just does eccentrics. Like most, most of what I do is a mixed method approach and eccentrics are a tool. It's, it's not a doctrine that everything has to be eccentric. Like you perhaps may bias some of your training at some point to a little bit more of it. But even then there's other things going on in the background that, that muddies the waters to see whether actually, as long as the needle's going this way, I don't really care really as long as it's going in the right direction obviously it helps for me for future programming as to what was it that caused the adaptation that i wanted but um yeah I, I think there's so many things going on that eccentric sometimes can move the needle but there are other things that perhaps could also be helping so it, it's it's a tool it's not a, a kind of strategy and a, a philosophy as it were yeah, I disappointed a lot of people when I first got hired here, like fresh out of my PhD program. You know, I'd get people asking, oh, well, how are you applying AEL to, to these guys? And I was like, well, we've pretty much narrowed it to our Nordic leg curl progression. Right? That, that's, that's pretty much it. They hold some dumbbells uh, once they get strong enough to do so. Uh, and so it took us a couple of years to get to the point where the players were ready. We were able to coach it. We had a... a justified rationale to to bring it in as well but uh yeah you know you gotta you, you very quickly get pinned as kind of the eccentric guy sometimes but we've, we've got a little bit more versatility than that i know you two do at least just to remind people any questions pop it in the chat or in the uh oh there you go in the q a uh, mike you had something to add there yeah um i guess to kind of tack on to what pete and john said is that uh i think people overblow how much you can actually use eccentric training. It's probably not something that you want to do as much as many people would like to think. It's kind of become sexy to talk about it lately. And 
um, I think of it more like icing on a cupcake. It's one of these things that is really, really important, but you simply can't have too much of it. And if you don't have the cupcake, then the icing is no good. So, you know, what, how much eccentric loading do I do? Well, I have some populations that barely see any AEL at all, other than Nordics as uh, maybe, maybe a couple uh, other posterior chain exercises over the course of a season. Uh, and then I have some other populations, probably the most aggressively loading that I have, which would be my athletics track and field population. I train them 48 to 50 weeks of the year. They're highly trained athletes. Their physical performance is their sport. And these guys, we take it as far, I think, as I've ever seen someone take accentuated eccentric loading and any of this fast eccentric work. And even there, to be quite honest with you, it is uh, supplemental to the basis of the program. It is not the foundation of the program. You simply couldn't have a program that was just, you know, majority eccentric work. People would just not be able to tolerate it and you wouldn't be able to get in any extra work. So, you know, when you think of the eccentric work and how much you should do, make sure you have the cupcake in place before you're putting the icing on. Otherwise it's not going to be a very effective program. Hey, you wrote an article on manually overloaded eccentrics. Would you mind just diving into that for us? Yeah, I guess that's the next progression on from, it's a, I guess, a bit of a hybrid between what I would call the meathead way of super maximal eccentrics where, and, and I, I used to do this when I was a, d a dumb kid, like I, <laughs> let's say I, my bench one arm was 100 kilos and it was me and my mate in some garage gym. We put 120 kilos on the bar and then I'd, fight being plastered by the bar i'd be all right at the at the top and then just be fighting gravity and get like poleaxed by the bar at the bottom and then my mate would round back deadlift it off my chest and then we'd go again and it was like this is good and but there's a progression here that like actually i'm probably good at the top but at the bottom like i'm basically just falling with style similar to where you see guys who are pretty weak doing a nordic they're very very good in this range but then at that long muscle length which perhaps may provide better uh, adaptations from an injury prevention perspective they're just falling with style so um, the manually overloaded allows me to kind of gauge where someone's peak torque is and give them force at the entirety of the of, of the shortening or whether lengthening velocity and um, what the reason behind that i guess is that you want guys to be strong at long muscle lengths but strong throughout the range of motion you don't want to get caught with yeah I'm really, really strong in here, thinking of, of rugby, for example, in a tackle position, we do so much shoulder work in, in this position, but actually the, the injury mechanism is where their shoulders caught out here. So can they be strong at those long muscle lengths? And the, the manual resistance allows potentially to uh, a solution to solve that problem. Um, not only that, it, it's fairly easy to scale up once you, um, like with, with larger groups, as long as you can coach the spot is well enough and you've got a group that are bought in that are, that are kind of understand what could go wrong from a safety perspective and they look out for their friends and, and for their, their fellow athletes and I think it also helps build some camaraderie uh, like I've utilized it a lot with with my guys now in the senior groups and I've used it before in, in academy groups where you get into groups of three three or four, one guy lifts, two guys spot, one guy rests and they rotate uh, and they communicate with each other to, to make sure that the rep is smooth, go through a range of motion. The guy who's working gets challenged by spotters to, to give maximal intent, which also helps. Um, I think 
I, I'm not saying it, again, it's, it's at all not a doctrine, but mm. it's one method that perhaps can be scaled up across different populations um like we've used it with barbells uh, actually found during lockdown it was it was quite a good good strategy we had lots of lads who lived in houses together in ones and twos and if we weren't able to get weights out to them using manual resistance body weight chins body weight press ups with manual resistance was actually a pretty good way of, of of getting peak force and i think lots of coaches over lockdown found that that you can do press-ups for sets of infinity and that's great. But the one thing that they're missing is, is, is a peak force stimulus. And so one of the ways we solved that was, was pairing up maximal isometrics with some form of manually overloaded eccentrics. And I even found it in my own training. My, I got my wife who, um, to, to pull me, pull me down doing chins. And she was laughing at me when I had a backpack with doing press-ups and she was pushing me down and, uh, I think she enjoyed that more than more than I did, but it, it's it's something that if I can coach my wife to spot me effectively, I think it's something that we can scale to coach sixteen-year-olds to coach senior players who perhaps aren't really that bought in. So um, it, it has potential to provide eccentric stimuli without equipment and, and things like that. Um, Mike, yeah, one thing uh, not related to manual resistance per se, but I think I've noticed something very similar to Pete is that basically people hit their fail point on an eccentric and then it just becomes a free fall and that you potentially miss out on the stimulus where we want it the most, which is at greatest lengths, joint, joint angles. So, you know, the, the Nordic is the one you see really obvious. It's probably the most regularly used uh, AEL type exercise and, uh, you know, people will catch themselves at arm's length. So I allow athletes to do that. And that, but that's like the first step in the progression. And then after that, we're kind of catching ourselves here. And then I'm removing the hands altogether. I'll put down a little mat on the ground and they can't even, uh, they have to crash into the ground and, uh, self-preservation of your face makes you fight all the way to the ground. And then shortly after that, we're getting people who are doing, you know, maybe slight pulses or having to being able to put their hands over their head or hold a, hold the external load. So if, if you never train that, uh, long extended range of motion, but that's where we want to see the the most gains, then you're really missing out. Like you're, you're well-intentioned in including eccentrics, but you're strong in these like short locked positions, which is not what we really care about. So, I think that's an important point that a lot of people miss out on. You know, you, anytime you see these uh, Nordic tests and people just free fall, it's like kind of laughable. Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> hey. I think that that's one of the benefits of the of the manually overloaded eccentrics is that because it's graded. So if someone's fairly strong at the top of a of a of a range of motion for whatever lift that is you can pull a little harder, you can push a little harder, however it is that you're spotting. When someone starts to reach that point where they're falling with style, the spotter can just back off a little bit and then actually they're still getting overloaded throughout that full range. And I think from a hypertrophy perspective, you're actually getting like maximal recruitment through all of it from a tempo of say two, three seconds, um, which again, that adds up in a, in a training week, in a training month and, and a training block. So I, I think you're able to potentially hit both sides, that strength side and that hypertrophy side and potentially um, an injury prevention uh, benefit there as well of 
like you said, you, you want guys to be hitting a Nordic out as long as they can, but that's the range of motion that's the hardest to do. And often, like you said, guys break their fall and because they're afraid of, of hitting their face. So you either make them hit their face so that they have to put maximum intent or we find ways, whether that's using a band or sometimes like we do a fair fair bit of, of manual eccentric hamstrings where we get them to lie down flat on a bench. They lift their legs up and then the, the guy spots like they're pulling a pint. Um, <laughs> And hopefully our young players don't understand that, but a few of them, <laughs> um, and, and they'll pull and our key cue is, is a smooth rep is a good rep. So where they're strong in that short range of mo- range of motion, the guy's actually having to pull quite hard when they get to that longer range where they back off and they're weak, the guy's not pulling as much, but hopefully like pulling a pint, you want it pulled nice and smooth. So I, th- I think that can be upscaled to, to many exercises based on really your creativity and, um, is there any time in the year that you would f- use that? I think more pre- than other? yeah, preseason is 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 the obvious time, uh, and then I, th- I think it's then development windows. So dependent on your sport, depends on when those development windows occur, if at all. Uh, if they don't, so for example, in in team sports like rugby and football, where you're getting games week in week out, you've got to try and pick your battles. So with a few of my guys that that I coach now that maybe aren't in the squad week in week out those are the guys who I can potentially be a little bit more aggressive with um, in terms of doing some eccentric work with them. Cause I know that they're nowhere near the squad that we need three or four guys to get injured before they're even there. That's where I might choose an individual. Uh, and then thinking a little bit even more tighter, pair it around rest windows because you don't want to be doing loads and loads of eccentric work and then expecting them to back up a five, six, seven, eight K day on feet because you're just not going to get good outcomes and you potentially increasing their risk of injury so right now in pre-season we do a lot of our eccentric work on a friday because we know that they've got saturday sunday as recovery days uh, and hopefully we're smart with our prescriptions so we don't go too crazy with the volumes we started with two sets of three in week in week week one and then progressed from there uh, and so to manage that soreness and then using saturday sunday as a buffer and then hopefully as they as they get that repeated bout effect and they, and and they get accustomed to doing it we can start perhaps using it on other days perhaps using it when they've got higher training days or like if they do have a game, we'll try and keep it as far away from that as possible, but we're not as worried that they're going to have that physical hangover that lasts two, three, four days. Were you going to dive in there, John? Um, no, I, I was going to kind of add, I can add a couple thoughts now because mm. Pete and Mike have both brought up <laughs> some really interesting points. You know, first, kind of going back to the, to the Nordic leg curls, I, I love, uh, you know, I love the idea of, of, the manual resistance as a, as a way to progress that exercise, especially to kind of distribute that tension over the entire range of motion. Um, but I, I do think there's also uh, some underappreciated benefit to, as Pete put it, falling with style, um, because at those end ranges, you are still going to have a really high eccentric rate of force development. So though they are free falling, so long as there's some intent to resist still, uh, the, there is potentially uh, some of those those high eccentric rates of force development in place that can, you know, especially the distal portion of the muscle uh, and, and beefing up that muscle tendon unit like that, that um, I, I personally think are, are still valuable, even if a guy or girl is not strong enough to, to kind of own that entire range of motion. But my, like many things that we've talked about, there's a time and a place for both. But um, I do think that that, that 
falling with style, uh, the style piece is, is often underappreciated. And then, um, you know, on the fatigue management side um, that, that Pete was referring to, that's, that's really tricky. It's really tricky. Um, and I, I think Pete does a great job with leaning on the competition calendar to help kind of dictate where, where this stuff fits. But, um, you know, one thing that we've found helpful too is, is to kind of look at um, what other training contents we want to stage with our eccentric work. And this does depend on what, what eccentric method that, that we're using. But, um, you know, we've used things like AEL jumps or, or even just AEL with it to a resistance training exercise at the beginning of a week. And typically our intensities are higher at the beginning of the week. And then as the week progresses, we play every day. So fatigue accumulates weekly. And so we tend to pull back late in the week, but we use that high eccentric loading and high eccentric rate of force development from AEL early in the week to stage like some more advanced plyometrics, some sprinting, some top speed work late in the week um, to, to kind of blend those things together on the performance and fatigue management side. So just wanted to offer another another structure for anybody who's listening that thought, you know, maybe that was, was helpful. Sweet. Thanks, mate. <clears throat> so we've got a couple of questions that have come in. I'm going to stick with you, John, if that's all right. One that came in just after I said, make sure you get some questions in and maybe a big, a big question that we potentially have covered, but we can, we can go over it again. That's no problem. Are there any specific exercises you find induce great adaptations with AEL? Um, yeah, I think the back squat is, is probably the, the easiest one to lean on. Um, I've, I've personally, uh, you know, experimented with like RDLs, but RDL, and this is if you're going to use weight releasers, uh, you know, you got to stand on a podium because you've got to give those weight releasers somewhere to go. So it becomes incredibly dangerous, but, uh, you know, squat and bench, uh, tend to be, you know, ones that athletes have good technical proficiency with and, and you can get a lot of bang for your bug. Like my dissertation work was on back squats. Most of my application has been with back squats, but um, I, I think that if you pull yourself away from just traditional resistance training, there's a lot of reasons to like AEL with plyometrics. Um, you know, either that's dropping dumbbells at the bottom of at the bottom of a jump. You know, I, I think that's a nice progression. Uh, it's not only get to depth jumps or those you know those shock method type of plyometrics, but also to to progress them because you can then step off of your of your podium with dumbbells in hand and, and kind of increase that that rate of eccentric loading on on the drop then to the subsequent jump so um the back squat on the resistance training side and then really just kind of simple counter movement jumps um with a yell would be my two go-tos there cool so david thank you very much for that question um anonymous attendee in your experience what are the most practical and efficient methods to incorporate AEL? with mass-based loading. I'm going to chuck that to Mike, if that's okay. Sure. So uh, I, this kind of uh, builds off of uh, John's question. You know, I don't get too tricky with the exercise selection there. In terms of practical application there, we'll use relatively simple exercises, but maybe have to modify a little bit to keep it safe in, especially when we're incorporating on a larger scale. So the two methods that I use quite frequently, which are kind of like uh, 
run in parallel with each other would be a strong weak method. So we have done RDLs quite a bit with uh, AEL using like a, a deadlift on the way up and then an RDL on the way down. And about two years ago, I actually started to use uh, a hex bar for that same exercise. And it really feels super comfortable and super safe. And I think just the the distribution of the load relative to center of mass just makes it a much more comfortable, safe way to lift loads that most people would never hit on an RDL. Uh, another thing that we've done is uh, like a two up, one down technique, and anybody can incorporate that. Uh, we've done it with front squats, back squats, a uh, handful of other exercises, even RDLs where you lift up with two legs and then down with one or two limbs and then down with one. Super safe because the loads that you need to use are actually you know, very, very manageable. Uh, you, you just have to figure out a way to handle that turnaround point. So for most people, the turnaround point is actually going to have to come to a pretty, you have to take out the stretch shortening cycle almost and just have there be a, a dead stop of sorts with uh, squatting to a box effectively or something to that nature, just because the transition from two or one down to two up is a little bit clunky, but uh, that's, those are two ways you could do it to today very safely. You know, you could uh, do a squat, uh, a squat with 60% of your load down to a box, put one center, one foot, try to stand up with that same load. And uh, you know, you'll hit, you'll hit AEL. So uh, pretty easily, pretty safely. So those are two practical ways that I use quite, quite regularly, super easy to do, even on like a glute ham, you know, we've done it with a glute ham two down or uh, one down two up and uh, very, very challenging, super safe, no issues with it. You've got another one coming your way, Mike. How long would you spend on preceding phases, submax tempos, max strength, submax ISOs prior to incorporation of AEL? So uh, this is, I think it sounds like I might be able to speak for everybody here, but I'm really cautious on getting to AEL other than some very select exercises. So with most of my populations, we don't get to, you know, really, really aggressive AEL. Uh, the one population that I do is my track and field athletes. We have them 48 to 50 uh, weeks of the year. They do heavy strength training three, three times a week during that time period. I can like, take these really small steps in progression. And uh, another thing that I, that I'll say, in addition to that, like that cupcake analogy is the uh, small steps lead to a longer journey. You know, if you take these big steps, your journey is going to be cut off by an injury or some derailment. So we take these small steps and I'm really, really particular with the progressions, progressions of loading, progressions of exercises, that kind of thing. Things that are a little bit nuanced and perhaps even like a little bit OCD and anal. But I think it allows me to get to places that are not only we don't need to get to with other populations, like a soccer athlete that can't squat body weight doesn't need to probably be doing AEL to get the stimulus benefits. That's like shooting, uh, shooting a bullet. You don't need to shoot really. Right. So, uh, they're going to see tremendous benefits from really, really simple foundational work. Now, the one exception there, which is what Pete brought up is like, what's the long-term implications of, uh, you know, for a youth athlete in terms of their longer development by incorporating AEL and the satellite cells and so forth. But, uh, I'm very, very careful and very, 
planned and progressive. We don't get to the really aggressive, sexy stuff. I see these guys, you know, on Instagram and YouTube doing stuff that they have no business doing. It takes me like months and months and months to build the, build my athletes to this stuff. And they can do it very competently and do overloaded Nordics and, you know, eccentric squats with 125% load safely without busting out their vertebral vertebral discs. But I wouldn't dare do that with a, with, you know, a underdeveloped athlete or someone that I'm not seeing on a regular basis. Cool. Thanks, mate. Um, we're at time, but did you, John, did you have anything to add there? You wouldn't mute your mic. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, you it's know, fine. Mike brings up a lot of really good point on the, um, you know, kind of the, the logic behind program decisions. And I think a lot of times we, we forget that there are maybe some criteria measures that we can put into place to just inform us. There's still going to be some, uh, some feel, some intuition that's involved in how we progress training, but um, putting in criteria-based measures. And uh, I think Pete mentioned this earlier, but our training decisions aren't made in isolation either. So when you're going to progress something, it obviously calls back uh, to what you've already exposed that athlete to in training. But that decision is also rooted in what you are going to expose the athlete to next in training. And so there, there has to be a, a very um, you know, deep understanding of not only where you've been, but where you're going. Um, and, and sometimes criteria can help us just kind of know where we're at on the map. Um, Mike's laid out a couple of really eloquent analogies. So I'll throw one in, uh, at the end there with, with the map, but, um, you know, thanks to both of you for sharing all of that. It was really, really good to learn. We've just ticked over the hour. So I'm going to let you three go, but lastly, I'm going to say, especially a big thanks to Mike and John for, uh, for creating a little bit of time in a very busy schedule. So really appreciate that. I know it's, it's difficult with time zones and things and obviously Pete as well. Thanks for tuning in to episode 419 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this chat with Mike, Pete and John. For me, it was an incredible episode that was done about a year ago, but I enjoyed it even more this time around listening back and picking things out than I did the first time around. So if you're into eccentric training, I hope you got loads out of it. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Smarterbase, which used to be Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, Santa College, and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, and look forward to chatting to you next time.